morning, everybody. Hey, great to see you. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, today is Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday when uh, actually Christians all around the world today are celebrating Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So all of our campuses, you should have guys gotten a palm from. Has everybody got that? Uh, let's shake it if you got it, okay? Give it a little shake and shake. Shake it, shake it, shake. Okay, here we go. All right. You can't unsee that. Uh, welcome to all of our campuses. Happy Palm Sunday. Here's the deal. Easter's just around the corner, and what we've been doing is for six weeks, we've been kind of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, visiting all these places Jesus lived, where he prayed, where he taught, where he healed, where he performed miracles, where he befriended sinners. In a lot of ways, what we're doing is it's like putting together a puzzle or a mosaic of Jesus of Nazareth. We're trying to get this fuller picture of this shattering personality from Galilee whose life, death, and resurrection changed the world. And with each week, you've probably seen this picture is kind of becoming more clear for us. I want you to think of where we've been because we've covered a lot of territory. We started our journey at the Jordan River, where Jesus was baptized by his cousin John. From there, we visited Capernaum, where Jesus kind of set up his ministry headquarters. Do you remember we went in that synagogue where Jesus taught with authority, where he cast out demons, where he started healing the sick? From there, we hiked to the Mount of Beatitudes. This is where Jesus gave his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he said, Here, here's what it means to be a follower of God. You are not going to retaliate against your enemies. You're going to love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And people are like, what is, we've never heard teaching like this. And then we took a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus calmed the, the wind and the waves, proving that he has, he has power over nature. And then last week, we journeyed with Jesus to Jericho, the oldest city in the world, 8,000 years old, where Jesus really showed why he came. He restored sight to a blind man named Bartimaeus and brought salvation to the house of a shady tax collector named Zacchaeus. Basically, everywhere that Jesus traveled, he had friends in low places. You know what I'm talking about? He, he loved the poor. He welcomed sinners. He actually healed the sick. He gave grace to spiritually thirsty people. But all these locations have been leading us to one place, the place where Jesus' journey ends and your faith begins, and that is Jerusalem, the city where Jesus would lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world on a Roman cross and change history forever. So today, we're going to put the next-to-last puzzle piece in place before Easter and journey to Jerusalem, the sparkling city of David in Israel. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, follow me. Here we go, okay? Your travel guide, we got the Bible. We're going to look at Mark 10 today. And just a warning, I'm going to fire hose you today, okay? It's just like I got I to gotta squeeze in seven days into, you know, 15, 20 minutes here. So here we go. Starting at verse 32, it says this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, because Jerusalem is elevated. They're going up there. And the disciples were, what, astonished, while those who followed were, what, afraid. So some are astonished, some are afraid. Again, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, this is so important, let's say the phrase in bold, what was going to happen to him? It's important that you understand that Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen to him. In fact, three times he told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, which was surprising because even the name Jerusalem, you see the word Salem there? Uh, it's where we get the Hebrew word shalom. It actually means peace. This was the city of peace, but Jerusalem was anything but peaceful for Jesus. In fact, this is the third time 
that he predicts his death to the disciples. Verse 33 says, we are going to, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Here's what they're going to do. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will do what? They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. But three days later, mark my words, he will rise. And you think that's pretty clear. But the disciples really didn't understand what he was saying. And I mean, you know, who can blame them, right? I mean, with every miracle, every healing, Jesus is like powerfully proving he is the God of miracles, that he's the Messiah, that he's the promised Savior or King that Israel had been waiting for. And so they assumed, we're going to Jerusalem for a coronation. Yeah, we're going to rock up, we're going to roll up into the city, and we're going to take this place, Okay. Like, we're going to have a victory parade because the people are behind us. Uh, the Pharisees are scared. We've got all the popularity. Jesus is growing in power. Yeah, they're like, let's go to Jerusalem, Jesus. Woo! It's just like, whoa, 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 slow, slow down, guys. You get this? I'm going there to suffer and die. I, I, I'm going to be condemned, tortured, and then they're going to kill me on a cross. But, but peace, I tell you. Three days later, I'm going to rise. And you know, the disciples were like, is that like a parable or something? Like, what's he talking about? No, this doesn't make any sense. Jesus, we're going in the city. You're going to be crowned king, okay? So don't be a downer. This is the high point of our ministry. I've told you, there's a reason they were called the disciples, right? <laughs> like, duh, right? Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three times, and they still don't get it. But understand, this was part of God's plan from the very beginning of time. That God the Father would send his only son to our world to heal, forgive broken lives. But it would cost him very dearly. That the son would have to be rejected, condemned, and ultimately killed on a cross in your place, in my place to pay for our sins. So let's go to Jerusalem for this last week of Jesus's life. It is traditionally called Holy Week. Christians all around the world are celebrating it today. It's going to be the next seven days. And um, about 40% of Mark's gospel is on these seven days. So let me set the scene for you, okay? I want you to imagine it's Sunday morning, okay? It's, it's, it's Palm Sunday, and Passover is about to start. Now, Passover is like the most important religious festival uh, in Israel, because what was it about? They were celebrating the defining story of the Jewish people when God miraculously delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, okay? So what would happen is that Passover, people would pack out the city. All across the Roman Empire, the Jews would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so at this point, it's like the Super Bowl. 200,000 pilgrims are pouring into the city, and Mark 11 says this, as Jesus and the 12 approached Jerusalem and came to, what's the place, church? The Mount of Olives. This is important. I want to pause here so that you can see what they saw. As the disciples climbed the Mount of Olives, this is what they would have seen. It's a mountain ridge to the east of the city that gives a panoramic view of Jerusalem. And you'll see at the center, of course, you have the glittering gold dome of the rock. This was a site of uh, the Jewish temple, the second temple. Now there's a mosque there. This is the holy site for actually Jews and Muslims. 
But the city of David, you can see, I mean, the ruins are spectacular because everything is made out of golden limestone so that when the sun sets or uh, it just like washes the city in this golden glow and, and people are abuzz and at night um, Jerusalem is buzzing with pilgrims as they go to the, the western wall to pray from all over the world. And Mark says this, as they approached Jerusalem and came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you're going to find a colt, a young donkey tied there, which nobody's ever ridden. I want you to untie it and bring it to me. Now, this is a weird request, all right? Jesus said, I want you to bring me a young donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, what? Because all through the Gospels, Jesus walked everywhere. There's no record of a, a Vespa. There's no record of a, a scooter, okay, a bike, nothing. Jesus walks everywhere, and he's never ridden anything before. In fact, watch this. They just walked 90 miles from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And now they're a half mile from the temple. Now he wants a donkey? Why? Because Jesus is about to show them and you what kind of king he is. See, 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah gave a promise to the Jews in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 prophesied this. It predicted, shout in triumph, O Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's what? He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And everybody in Jerusalem knew that prophecy. They were taught from age eight when they started memorizing the scriptures that one day the Savior King will ride up into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so Jesus is saying, guys, I want to send a message. This is my public unveiling. I am the long-awaited Savior King, predicted by the Bible. I am openly announcing I'm the Messiah or Savior. But notice something. Zechariah says, look, your king's coming to you. He's righteous, he's victorious, but he's humble, riding on a donkey. What kind of king is Jesus? Answer, a humble one. See, in the first century, the way victorious kings rode up into a city was very different. You rode up on a white war horse, a stallion, pulled by golden chariots, right? Flaunt it if you've got it. <laughs> you want people to know you had military muscle. Uh-uh, not Jesus. It's not just the first century. Think of today. Remember when you were watching the royal wedding with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle rolling up through like London, right? How did they roll? How'd they roll through London? They're like, we're going to bring our white horses. We got our little chariot over here. We have Her Majesty's armed guard. Clop, 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 clop. That's how you roll if you're a prince into a city, not Jesus. He says, my kingdom isn't about muscle, wealth, or power. It's about humility and peace and service. And so he rides a humble donkey to show that he's the shepherd king come to serve his people. When they brought the cult to Jesus, threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread what? Branches they had cut in the fields. You got your palm frond? Take that on out. Now, this is going to be interactive, okay? Uh, a palm frond kind of looked like this, uh, very similar to what you are holding here. Why palm branches? Well, first off, palm trees are indigenous to Israel. You do see them all over the place. But it was common practice in the first century 
to welcome a king or a war hero by, watch, taking palm branches and actually stripping off the fronds and laying it in front of the horse that he was riding in on. Here he comes. Here comes the king. It was the ancient way of rolling out the... You got it? So people are like, here he comes. Here comes the coming king. And they start waving it. They're like, imagine this scene, okay? Jesus is riding the donkey down the Mount of Olives. And Mark says this, those who went ahead, those who follow shouted, what's the word? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that word Hosanna means save us. So they're actually saying, you're our savior. This is Jesus's royal procession. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they're laying down it. They're waving their palm branches. Can you picture this? When Colin and I were in Jerusalem in January, we went down this street. This is actually the street that they came down on. And today, right now on Palm Sunday, pilgrims from all over the world, every language, tribe, and nation are walking down it, and they're waving palms, and they're shouting, Hosanna. Can we try that? Say Hosanna. Hosanna! Hosanna! Save us! Save us, Jesus! Hosanna! Here comes a blessed king! Right? This is a victory parade. So it's a celebration. Our, our time has come. The king is here. We're going to rock this city. But wait, why is Jesus sobbing? What? Yeah, go, go ahead and look. Imagine you're a disciple. Imagine you're in this crowd and people are shouting and celebrating and dancing. And you like, you like run up to Jesus. He's on the donkey. And you're like, Jesus, isn't this amazing? This is awesome. And you're like, wait, what? And you see he has hot tears coming down his, his cheeks. You're like, wait, what? Why is Jesus crying? Luke describes it this way. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he what? Wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but even now, it's hidden from your eyes. The word for wept here is not gentle tears of a baby. It means uncontrollable sobbing and sorrow. Like, literally, like he's convulsing, crying, and everyone else is jazz hand celebrating. Why is everybody excited, and yet the king is crying? Because Jesus knew in just five days that the same crowd that was shouting, Hosanna, five days later would shout, crucify him, crucify him. Because Jesus is not an ordinary king. He's God in the flesh. He's omniscient. He knows what's going to happen. He knew the future, and he knew the hearts of men and women. That the moment these guys figure out that he's not going to bring the political power, the military might that they crave, they're going to reject him. They're going to reject his message of love and forgiveness. They're going to reject his call to love your enemies. They're going to reject his, his message to pray for those who persecute you. He's going to reject this idea of doing good to those who, who did wrong to you. See, Jesus is not a conquering king who fits our expectations. He is a prince of peace. And the people wanted the way of the sword. They were looking for a military strongman who'd punish their enemies, who would liberate them from the rotten Romans. Stick it to them, Jesus. They're going to reclaim Jerusalem. <laughs> but Jesus knew Jerusalem's future too. He knew that 35 years later, Rome would actually send 60,000 soldiers into this city and slaughter one million Jewish people and tear down 
the temple. And that's exactly what happened in the year A.D. 70. In Jerusalem, we had a chance to actually see the street that Jesus rode in on, as well as the ruins of the Jewish temple. Check this out. Hey guys, I'm here in Jerusalem. I want to show you the road that Jesus walked into the city. Take a look right here. This is the road we know Jesus came in on when he came into Jerusalem going to the temple. This is the temple. This is the western wall of the temple. And what's incredible is you can still see the ruins from when the Romans destroyed it. Take a look. They just excavated these. These are the rocks. They're literally in the same place from when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, poured it over the wall, into rubble, into ruins, and saying, don't ever mess with Rome. But remember what Jesus said? Tear down this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. I'll rise again. Of course, he wasn't speaking about the literal temple, but he is the ultimate temple. And you and I are now the temple of God filled with the Holy Spirit. Welcome to Jerusalem. You understand why Jesus was crying? As God, he looked into the future and saw two temples that were about to be destroyed. In 35 years, he said, that temple is going to be destroyed and torn down by the Romans. And in five days, my temple, my body is going to be torn to pieces too. So when Jesus is, is, is weeping, it's over two things. Jerusalem's destruction and his own crucifixion. So understand, Palm Sunday, day of celebration for us, day of profound sorrow for Jesus. Heart-wrenching sadness as it launched a series of events that led to a king dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, before we get to the cross, because I know everyone always wants to go there, we've got to stop at a couple more places. Because right here at the foot of Mount of Olives was one of my favorite visits in Israel, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, actually, on the night that he was betrayed. His disciples came together. They, they shared a final meal, or, or they call it the Last Supper, and we're going to actually end with communion today. And we'll, we'll get to that. But after dinner, Mark 14 says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Can you say that? Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul, he said, it's overwhelmed. You ever feel overwhelmed? She said, my soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can you stay here? Keep watch with me? Now, this is fascinating because the word Gethsemane in Aramaic means olive press. As you can see, we took this picture, it's actually full of these ancient gnarled olive trees. Some of them are over 900 years old, the oldest olive trees in the known world. So this is the original olive garden, okay? But, but this is, okay, it's, all right, so here we come with it. So they, they, they would harvest the olives, now watch this, and they would crush and squeeze the olives to produce a special oil known as olive oil, yeah. And just like, you know, oil today, gasoline kind of thing is like precious to us. Okay, olive oil was the most valuable commodity in Jesus' day because it was used for medicine. It was used for cooking and watch. Olive oil was used to anoint kings. Christ means the anointed one. You could actually visit in Gethsemane the cave where they had the olive press. And the olive press worked like this. They'd hitch up a donkey to two stones. They'd throw the olives into the press and essentially, it would be ground up. Keep this image in your mind right now. 
that in order to extract the full oil, you had to go round and round, crushing and squeezing the olives. Now, we took a walk through Gethsemane. I could tell you it is a beautiful secluded garden. It's a perfect place I could see to seek solitude. And Jesus would often take his disciples here just to rest and get away from the crowds. But this time was different. Jesus said, I'm overwhelmed with anxiety. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour of suffering might pass from him. Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Father, he cried. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Gethsemane is a place of prayer. This is where Jesus wrestled with the reality of his coming crucifixion. I want you to imagine all of the emotions that Jesus experienced in this place. I mean, for all eternity, here's what Jesus knew. God the Father and God the Son in perfect unity, loving harmony. He said, you look at me, you've seen the Father. The Father's like, this is my Son. I'm so well pleased and proud of you, Jesus. They're in perfect harmony. And this is the moment where Jesus knows he's going to be crucified in the next 24 hours. And on the cross, he would cry, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. So Jesus knew when he takes on all the sin of the world, it's not just the physical pain of the cross. He's going to have all the separation, all the judgment, all the punishment required by a holy God. So it's no surprise that Jesus prayed three times for the cup of suffering to pass. But why did he pray three times? You ever wonder that? Here's the answer. Watch this. Hey guys, I'm standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the place on the Mount of Olives where Jesus went on the night that he was betrayed. If you look around, you'll see these are the olive trees, very similar to the ones that he walked among. We know he was in this place before he went to the cross. This was the place where he came to pray with his disciples. But do you remember something? He prayed, he said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. He didn't want to go through the suffering on your behalf. Here's something interesting about olives. Did you know that the olives from this press would be crushed or pressed three times to get the full olive out? Well, guess what? In the garden, Jesus prayed three times, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In other words, he was being crushed. He was being pressed for your sin, for my iniquities, and by his wounds, praise God, we are healed. Jesus prayed so hard, scriptures say that he actually sweat was like drops of blood. So understand, this is the place of suffering. Before there is the power of resurrection, there is the obedience of the cross. In this garden, your king was crushed. In this garden, your Lord was pressed and, and squeezed and afflicted and suffered physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Three times. And in the end, Jesus said, I'm willing. I'll do it. I'm willing to surrender, Father, to your will because of my great love for them, for you, and for me. And I think this setting is meant to remind us of another garden. You know, the Bible opens in the Garden of Eden with your parents, Adam and Eve, who ate, of course, the forbidden fruit. And, and I think of Adam and Eve, our parents, 
standing before the tree of knowledge, their prayer, in essence, was the opposite. Their prayer was, Father, not your will, but my will be done. I'm going to do it my way. But in Gethsemane, Jesus had a choice. Save his own life or obey his Father and die for the sins of the world. And his prayer was the reverse of Adam. Not my will, but what? Your will be done, Daddy. And when Jesus prayed those words of obedience and surrender, he began reversing the curse of sin in the Garden of Eden and restoring paradise. So in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, and then he was betrayed by one of his own, Judas. His disciples who accepted a bribe from the religious leaders who, P.S., were jealous of Jesus. See, it wasn't just the Romans who were obsessed with preserving their power. You got to understand, the Pharisees, they were totally jealous of Jesus. Why? Because he, op he called them out openly in front of the people. He's like, you guys are hypocrites. You love money. You're manipulative. You're full of pride. You're a brood of snakes, of vipers. And people are like, yes! Stick it to him, Jesus. <laughs> and the crowd started ignoring the Pharisees and following Jesus. That's why Mark writes, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover festival, they said. Or the people may what? Riot. We don't want a riot at Passover. And so they came up with a plan to falsely accuse Jesus and arrest him secretly. They're like, where does he hang out when he's not in the city? And Jesus is like, I know. And they're like, can you tell us? What are you going to pay me? And they're like, um, 20 pieces of silver? How about 30? All right. I'll take you to the Olive Garden. <laughs> Don't go to the Olive Garden. That's it. <laughs> and they came bearing clubs and swords and torches. And Jesus said, why, why are you bringing these? I surrender willingly and lay down my life for my sheep. And all the disciples fled after Judas kissed him and named him. This is the one. And they abandoned Jesus in his moment of need. And guys, this is the moment that Jesus becomes the Passover lamb whose innocent blood would be shed to free his people from sin and death. From Gethsemane, Jesus was taken. He was arrested. He was shackled and taken to a trumped-up trial in the very wee hours of Friday morning. Pilate actually the Roman governor, sent him to King Herod, and King Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate because he basically, Jesus was a hot potato. No one even knew what to do with him. They're like, everybody knows he's innocent of these charges. <laughs> Everyone knows this is completely made up, and the only crime he has is speaking God's truth to make the Pharisees jealous. But Pilate was a politician. You guys like politics? Pilate would get elected in our day, man. This guy knows how to cave. The city's packed with pilgrims. We don't want to ride on our hands. And so Pilate caves like a good politician. And he sentenced Jesus to death. So understand, you have church and state coming together to issue his sentence, death. Death by crucifixion. Now, Roman crucifixion was the most painful form of execution imaginable. And we focus on the cross, and rightly so, but you can't get there yet. Mark wants you to look at this. Because before you went to the cross, Jesus, Jesus first would have been flogged. Flogged means lashed. And the Romans had these leather straps that were, had embedded of metal and shards of bone. And so they basically would lash you over and over and over until your back was filleted. 
and bleeding. The Roman soldiers actually had a tradition of torturing condemned criminals before executing them. So before the cross, the soldiers had some fun. Mark 15 says, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a, a purple robe on his bloody back and then twisted together a, a crown of what? A crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again, they struck him on the head and the back, and they spit on him. And falling on their knees, there's the king! Paid homage to him. This is the only crown that King Jesus ever wore on earth. And it was a cruel coronation because the Roman soldiers didn't just torture their victims, they literally made a game of it. If you're sensitive to blood or violence, you may want to look away from this next clip. Rosa Pulcherrima. Aspigite illum, regem vermum. Ave, rex verminosus, ave. Homo regalis. Ex sumus tibi venera. Historically, we know this is accurate. I want to show you the most chilling place that we visited in Jerusalem. It was the underground catacombs in the praetorium or the governor's house, the dungeon where prisoners were kept. And as we walked down there and considered what Jesus endured, our guide actually said, look at under your feet, the stones, you'll see carvings. And we looked and sure enough, there are ancient markings carved into the stone on the floor. We're like, is that graffiti? No. Guys, this is a dice game that Roman soldiers played. It's called the Game of Kings. Not Game of Thrones, it's Game of Kings. They actually used sheep's knuckles for dice. And they would roll the dice on this, their, their playing board. How do we know? You see the scorpion up here? That's the symbol of the Roman legion. In the big circle, this represents a crown. And so the soldiers would row the dice and they would pick one condemned prisoner and they say, you are the king for the day. And they would put a purple robe on him and a crown on his head and then they would gamble for his possessions. They'd roll the dice for his house, roll the dice for his clothes, roll the dice for his wife because legally in Rome, you could take a prisoner's possessions. And then they would treat the prisoner like the king for a day until they lost. And you know what the winner got? You get to kill him. You catch this? The Romans literally made a board game 
of crucifixion. And prophetically, they picked Jesus to be king for the day, putting a purple robe on his bloody back and crunching a crown of thorns on his head. And scripture says they hit him over and over and over. Hail, king of the Jews. Prophesy. Who hit you? If you're God, tell, who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit? Who hit you? That's what I thought. This is the darkest hour of the darkest day in human history. When man murdered God. And somehow the God of the universe held his power back and absorbed all of the punishment that you and I deserved out of radical love for you. He went to the cross for you and me. Guys, we can't look away. We have to place ourselves here because we're all guilty before holy God. At some point, all of us have sinned. All of us have rejected God. We've all mocked Jesus at some point. Verse 20 says, when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. Tradition says the soldiers marched Jesus down the Via Dolorosa. I took some pictures so you could see these places. Via Dolorosa translates to the road of pain or the way of sorrow. And you can walk it in Jerusalem. When you visit, the Via Dolorosa is actually this narrow street that snakes through the city. It goes by all these shops and stores. And the brutal soldiers would kind of lead the condemned prisoners through, whipping them as they went. Come on, keep going, keep going. Because they're getting them outside the city gate where they're going to crucify him as a warning to all who watch. This is what happens to would-be kings. In fact, this coming Friday in Jerusalem, here's what it's going to look like. This Friday, thousands of Christians from around the world will flood through the Via Dolorosa together to remember Jesus' journey to the cross. Now, we call this Good Friday because it was good for us, but it was excruciating for Jesus. The Romans would have made him carry a 75-pound cross a half mile through the streets. And this procession ends at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site of Golgotha. Mark says they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the what? The skull. Now, in the first century, Golgotha was actually outside the city gates. It was a rocky hill shaped like a skull. And the Bible says it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, what's it say, church? King of? And so at that moment, the soldiers would have stretched Jesus out on a cross and driven iron spikes through his hands and then his feet. And beyond the blood loss, understand the horror of crucifixion is you didn't die from blood loss. It's death by suffocation. As you hung there, unable to support your own weight and bleeding profusely, your body eventually collapsed and caved in on itself and you suffocate under your own weight. And then they hoisted the cross in the air so that everybody coming into the city said, this is what happens to kings who mess with Rome. 
And there on that cross, still wearing the crown of thorns, King Jesus hung for six hours, slowly dying for you, for me. Taking on the full weight of our sin and receiving the full wrath of God in my place. In his book, The Way, Walking in the Footsteps of Jesus, author Adam Hamilton writes, he says, you know, this, this is the kind of king that we follow, a king whose standard is the cross. But when I look at the cross, I don't just see pain and punishment. I see a divine love story in the heart of a God who said, I will suffer in myself to save my kids. And guys, this is the ultimate miracle I want you to think about this. The Son of God prays to his Father, Daddy, if there's any other way to do this, take this cup from me. And I want you to imagine, parents, God the Father looking down on his son and saying, but son, I love them so much. I love Joe so much. I love Erica so much. I love Jermaine so much. I love John so much. There's no other way we can do it. And the son says, I love them too, Daddy. And I'll die. I'll do it in their place. Not my will but yours be done. That's how much God loves you. So you understand, when I say Jesus loves you, it's the most selfless, sacrificial love in the universe. It is a parent dying for their child. It's a lover dying for her beloved. The cross is God saying, I'd rather die than live without you. It's a sign of the lengths God the Father would go through to save you from your sin and reunite you in the family of God. That's the price of forgiveness. And then Luke says, hanging on the cross, looking down at his enemies, at the Roman soldiers, at the Pharisees, at you, at me, Jesus utters words that I find utterly astounding. He prays one more time. And Jesus said, let's read it. Father, forgive them. Forgive them they don't know what they're doing. What kind of king do you serve? You serve a king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, was crowned with thorns, a king who was crushed in a garden and enthroned on a cross so that he could forgive you and forgive all of his enemies. That's the kind of king we serve. That's the kind of king we serve. And then our king says, wanna follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. That's what's gonna make to restore the world, that kind of love. What's it mean to become a Christian? It's to put your faith in the king's cross and next Sunday, his resurrection from the dead. Who's ready for Easter? I'm ready for Easter. I'll tell you, this preached to me this week. I just, nil this, I started crying. You let that itch you, what Jesus did for you. And so I was like, we can't just run to Easter. We have to stay in this place on Palm Sunday. And what I want to do is celebrate communion, the Passover meal, 
that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. This is our last stop. The Bible says just before he was betrayed in Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, I want you to find an upper room in the city. And so Colleen and I climbed the stairs and went inside the traditional site of the upper room in Jerusalem. And it's unusual. When you walk in, you got to bend down, but inside it has this vaulted ceiling. And this is the place where they would have held the Passover meal. This, this is the Jewish meal where they would have recited the miracle story of how God delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now, the Passover meal is 3,000 years old, so here's what we're about to do. We're going to take the Passover elements, the bread and, and the wine, and Jesus' and his disciples would have actually recited the Exodus story. Remember how God, the, 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 the blood of a lamb, like over the doorpost, and then we were freed out of slavery? Yeah. But on this night, Jesus redefined it forever. Mark says, while they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, let's read it, take it, this is my, this isn't bread anymore. It's going to represent my body being broken for you. And then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And said, this is not wine, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, for Joe and for Erica and for Lewis, and for Kevin, and for Stacy, and for Kathy, and for Chris, and for... Jesus took these ordinary Passover elements that you're about to receive, the bread and the wine, and he gave them new meaning. He said, every time you take this, you're going to remember how much I love you. You're going to remember what I went through for Father to forgive you. And this is the moment where Jesus became our Passover lamb whose blood was shed to forgive your sin. So when you receive communion right now, we are joining King Jesus in remembering his death, his blood. Some traditions call this meal the Eucharist. It means Thanksgiving. So we're, we're thanking Jesus for all he went through for us. So understand what you're about to do. In this meal, you are joining Jesus in that upper room. And when you take the, the bread and the grape juice, you recognize it's you taking his body and his blood and saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I, save me, Hosanna, save me. Be my savior. I receive your sacrifice in my place. Forgive me, free me from my sin so I can follow you as my savior and Lord of my life. That's how you become a Christian. It's so simple and so profound. So all our campuses, we're now going to receive communion. I want you to go there in your heart and join Jesus in that upper room. Before your campus pastor comes to lead communion, I want us to take just a few moments for silent prayer. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment, clear some space. And you talk to God and you pray, you confess your sins Ask him to cleanse you anew, but ponder the sacrifice and just thank Jesus right now for his love and sacrifice and forgiveness.
Father, we just thank you. We are stunned that you would sacrifice your one and only Son to save us, to forgive us, and to adopt us into your family. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. From the depths of our heart, we thank you for Palm Sunday, for riding into that city knowing what was waiting for you, for surrendering your will to the Father. Help us, Lord. Help us in our moments of being overwhelmed and feeling sad, full of anxiety, Father. Peace. Trusting you. And Father, we thank you for those three dark days you spent in that tomb. We can't wait for Easter. We can't wait to shout and praise and celebrate that you are risen, you're a conquering king, you're coming again. But in this moment, God, we thank you for the gift of your body and your blood shed for us. We receive it with thankful hearts now. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. amen.